It's very, very good to be here with you all. It's good to see uh, lots of familiar faces and to see many new ones. I'd like to bring you greetings, first of all, from First Scots Presbyterian Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. That's where uh, the Lord has called me and my wife to serve uh, since uh, our time here in Stuttgart came to a close. And thank you very much, Brother Nick, for your faithful ministry here. And thank you all of you. Uh, for the contribution that you make to the life and the work of this church, church which is obviously very dear to me and to Hillary. I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians, and we'll be looking at chapter 4, the first three verses. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to the ministry of the Word now, our humble prayer is that you will bless it to each one of us. And that your word will go forth, not in word only, but also in power. And that your Holy Spirit will attend the ministry for our good and for the glory of Christ. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In various fields of endeavor, fields of study, um, I I think of some of our uh, college students, university students here, those who are currently engaged in study or maybe have recently completed study or getting ready uh, for study. Um, If you study something, for instance, like music, which is what I studied when I was an undergraduate, um, there are a number of different fields within that discipline that you can pursue. So if you want to be the person who writes music that other people will perform, you can major, you can study in university music composition. If you want to be a music teacher, you can major in music education. Uh, you can study music theory as a major, music history even, if those are the areas that interest you and you want to pursue. If you want to be the person who's on the stage, if you want to make your living or hope to seek to make a living playing music, you major in music performance, um, or as it's sometimes called, applied music. You take the things that the theorists study about, the, things, the, the, the works that the composers compose, and you get up in front of an audience and perform those things. That's, that's what we called applied music, where I studied. And I want to share with you uh, some 
of some thoughts from God's Word this morning, these verses from Ephesians, because I think they speak to us about applied faith. What you find if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, especially, is that much of the time, his letters have a certain structure where in the early chapters of the letter, he'll be focused primarily, not exclusively, but he'll be focused primarily on uh, doctrine. What do we believe? What does God's Word teach? What does the Holy Spirit teach? And then at some point in the letter, there's a shift in emphasis. And at that point, the emphasis of the rest of the letter is upon practice. You see that division very clearly in the letter to the Roman church, where chapters 1 through 12, excuse me, chapters 1 through 11 are primarily doctrinal. Then there's a big shift. And so beginning at chapter 12, then Paul begins to explain all these things that we believe and teach, this is how you live because those things are true. So the shift is from uh, doctrine to practice, from teaching to application, applied faith. And that shift occurs in the letter to the Ephesians right here where we read this morning. That shift from doctrine to practice occurs at chapter 4 in Ephesians. And what this passage teaches us and continues to teach as you progress through Ephesians is that because Christians are called to be one holy people, we must manifest unity and purity. We're called to be one people, and so we need to manifest unity. We're called to be a holy people, and so therefore we must manifest purity. Now, if you'd like to take notes and if you'd like to know the preacher's outline in advance, here's my outline. The first thing we're going to talk about is the fact that we need to walk worthy. Secondly, we need to bear with one another. And finally, we need to preserve peace. Okay? Walk worthy, bear with one another, preserve peace. So first of all, we are commanded in this text, the first point of application in Paul's application section in Ephesians is uh, walk worthy. You notice uh, he doesn't make this statement, Scripture, the Holy Spirit doesn't make this statement as if it's a suggestion, maybe a nice idea to try out. This has the force of a command. It's a Christian mandate, not optional. And this, this aspect of the text actually comes out more clearly in the German Bibles than in the English ones because uh, in, in the English Bible that I read to you just a moment, you see Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But that word urge doesn't come at the beginning of the sentence. In Greek, it does. The... the, the, the uh, The command, I urge, in the Greek language is the first thing that happens in that sentence. And most of the German versions that I consulted uh, read the same way. They have that that, um, imperative at the beginning. And when you have it uh, set up that way in in Greek, you move that to the beginning of the sentence and it gives emphasis. 
So it just lends more to the importance of this statement, of this command. I urge you, Paul is saying. And that same word, just to kind of give a sense of, of, of the force of it. Uh, other places where you see that word in the, in the Greek New Testament include, you know the passage in Acts 27, where Paul is on a ship. And that ship has been at sea and has been in a terrible storm. And the people on the ship haven't had anything to eat for two weeks. And it's at that point that Paul uses this very word when he urges them to take some food. So you get the sense of the importance and the weight of the command. Or when, when Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says to his, to his readers, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts because why? They wage war against your soul. So this, that that earnestness and that heartfelt um, plea uh, that Peter gives there or that Paul gave on that ship in the storm-tossed Mediterranean Sea, that's the same force here where he's saying in our text today, I urge you I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Apologize, this, this little Bible I brought with me doesn't stay open, so I have to keep reopening it when I go back. But, uh, um, so, you see the importance of that already. But another thing about this text is, you know how Paul introduces himself in this verse. He speaks of himself as the prisoner of the Lord. And I think the fact that as a prisoner of the Lord, he's making this, this, um, this command. He's delivering this imperative. That just gives more weight to the exhortation. Because he's making it from the perspective of and from the standpoint of a person who is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Have you ever gotten the sense when you read Paul's letters or when you read the book of Acts, have you ever gotten the vague impression that when Paul began to experience hardship for the gospel and when he was imprisoned for the gospel, that he began to regret serving Christ? Have you ever had that feeling whatsoever? I haven't. Being imprisoned never made Paul regret being Christ's servant. And that's pretty astonishing if you think about it. Imagine for a moment a man who is in prison. He's been been guilty of a crime. He's been convicted and he's been imprisoned. And he's serving a sentence in prison because of a crime he committed. And and the man's son or, or a young person that he's close to comes and visits him in prison. Can you imagine that man talking to this person who's visiting him and him saying to the young person, I urge you not to do what I did. Please promise me you won't live the way I lived because I don't want you to experience what I'm experiencing. I think that's what I would do if I'd messed up and done something really bad and were in prison. If my son came and visited me, I would, I would beg him not to do what I did. Is that what Paul says when he's in prison? 
Not at all. Paul, from his chains, from his imprisonment, can write to the Ephesian church and say, Christ is worth it. And so, because he's worth it, walk in a manner worthy. And that word walk, of course, you know, it, it's not a reference to, to putting one foot in front of the other. It's, it's speaking of our behavior. It's speaking of our manner of life. And he uses that sort of language numerous times throughout Ephesians. If, if you've got your Bibles open to the Ephesian letter, uh, just glance with me at verse 17 in chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. What's he saying? He's saying don't live like a Gentile. Don't behave like a Gentile. Or if you go on to chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Seeing your lifestyle, your manner of living, That's what he means by the term walk. And so, in our text here, he's saying to you and to me, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Your walk is an exhibition of your character. Your walk shows the world, it shows everybody around you who you really are. And what is your character? Character really comes down to what you do when no one is watching. Your character comes down to where you go on the internet when you know you have the ability to delete your browsing history. Character has to do with things like that. You, you children, your character shows when you think your parents won't find out what you're doing. What do you do then? That's where a person's real character shows up. So Paul is saying, let your character, let your character exhibit the kind of character that ought to be on display by a person who has been called. Walk in a manner worthy, he says. Worthy of what? The calling to which you have been called. Now, when we start to talk about Christian calling, there's a There's a lot of places we could go. There's a lot we could discuss. We could, a lot of points to be made. I just want to bring out four aspects of the calling that you and I have because we've been called by Christ. First of all, we've been called to the hope of glory. And again, in Ephesians, if you you turn back to the first chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, at this point, is praying for his readers, and he prays that they would have the eyes. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So we've been called to the hope of glory. We've been called to inherit the promises of God, the promises of the gospel. Do you ever reflect on that? The fact that you as a Christian are an heir to eternal glory. That's your inheritance. When I die, 
when my wife and I both pass away, our two sons will inherit you know, whatever we left behind. And it won't be a whole lot. We're not rich people. But your inheritance, your inheritance is eternal glory. And Christ purchased that for you. That's what you've been called to. You've been called to the hope of glory. You've been called to be God's children. Children of Almighty God by adoption. He mentions that in the first chapter of Ephesians as well. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's your calling. We were dead in sins and trespasses, but he has made us alive. We were children of the devil, and God has redeemed us and adopted us into his family. He's made us, he's made us his sons and daughters. So we're called to the hope of glory. We're called to be God's children. We are called to holiness. And that's really where the walk comes back in. How are we to live? We're to live holy lives. Holy living as opposed to impurity. Uh, we don't need to turn there right now, but uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 7 speaks of we're called to holiness, not to impurity. And we're called to imitate the holiness of God, to be holy because He is holy. So those are the things we're called to. And because we're called to those things, we're to walk worthy of those things. Now, let's remember one thing, one very, very important thing before we move on. And that is, I was not called and you were not called because we were worthy. Right? It's not that there was something in me that God found attractive or worthwhile or redeemable and said, I'm going to call him because I see this in him. We weren't called because we are worthy. Uh, if you've read Ephesians chapter 2, the first several verses, you know this is the case. We were dead in sins and trespasses in which we once walked. We weren't called because we are worthy. Instead, we must walk in a manner worthy because we have been called. Genuine salvation produces new life making us new creatures, okay? So we're called to walk worthy of our calling. What does that look like? What does it mean to walk worthy? Well, starting in Ephesians 4, that's what Paul's talking about for the rest of his letter. And everything that follows is an exposition of how to live as a Christian, how to live as a Christian in the, in the world, how to live as a Christian in the home, how to live as a Christian, as a husband, or as a wife, or as a child, or as a parent. How to live as a Christian in the workplace, and as a citizen of a worldly nation. How to do it, what it looks like. And that's what we call, that's why I titled the sermon, Applied Faith. This is how we apply our faith. And so, the... The second point of the sermon is really the first big application point, the first big aspect, we might say, of applied faith 
And it is, bear with one another. Look with me again at verse 2 of our text. Bear with one another. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We're called to bear with one another. And there are three attributes, three specific attributes named in that verse that help us to bear with one another. The first attribute is humility. See that in the text, humility. That means lowliness of mind. It means not thinking of oneself uh, more highly than we ought. And you know, you know, that in our flesh, we're naturally proud. And it's the Holy Spirit, then, who produces humility. And I think it stands to reason, don't you, that humility is essential to unity. Proud people can't be united. It takes humility. Humility is essential to unity. In the book of Proverbs, at least three times throughout the book of Proverbs, it says, humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. And the way the Apostle Peter kind of expanded upon that uh, if you turn to First Peter chapter five, keep your finger in Ephesians, but turn with me to First Peter five. In verses five and six, Peter elaborates a little bit upon this this matter of humility and how humility comes before honor. First Peter five, starting in verse five, he says, "You who are younger, be subject to your elders." Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Maybe that's what the writer of Proverbs had in mind when he said, humility comes before honor. That honor that's coming is the honor that comes from God when he exalts us at the proper time. But first comes humility. So right here at the beginning of the application section of Ephesians, we've got this uh, exhortation, this promotion for us of the idea of humility. Same thing happens in Romans, starting in chapter 12. So in the application portion of Romans, when it begins, one of the first things Paul mentions there is this idea of humility. Why? He says in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Why is humility such a central and important thing when we begin to talk about how to live the Christian life? Well, there are two reasons, at least two. First of all, because without humility, unity cannot survive. That's number one. Without humility, unity cannot survive. Secondly, all of us are so susceptible to pride. 
continually. You feel like you have a pretty good handle on humility, and the next thing you know, your pride is welling up. And so that's why the scriptures have to remind us over and over to humble ourselves, remind us about the importance of humility. And when we practice humility, when we cultivate humility, we imitate Christ, don't we? We become imitators of our Savior when we seek to cultivate humility. So that first attribute is humility. The second is gentleness. And what the word basically means is uh, someone who's not easily provoked to anger. Someone who's not easily offended. And that same word and that same concept of gentleness appears in Galatians 5, where we have the fruit of the Spirit. And that passage with the fruit of the Spirit starts with the word but... But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It goes on, and uh, almost the last one, right before self-control, is gentleness. And that list of fruit of the Spirit is opposite and in complete contrast to things, uh, the, the works of the flesh, right? And those were listed right before the fruit of the Spirit. And among them were strife, Strife, unity, you see how those are opposites. Fits of anger. And here's the thing. Strife is easy. Fits of anger are easy. In the sense that they come easily to us, is what I mean. It's easy for us to lose our temper. It's easy for us to get involved in bickering, controversy, Those things come naturally to fallen people. We can do those. We don't need training in those things. But in contrast to strife and fits of anger and all the works of the flesh, we need to cultivate gentleness, and the Holy Spirit does that for us. Let me make one other point, too, since many of you here are involved in the the military in some capacity or other. And actually, really, I was, I was going to say to all the men and the boys, but really it's, it applies across the board. Men, women, boys, girls. Listen, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is really strength, to be honest. Humility Gentleness, those are not things that are widely admired, are they? Not widely admired by the world. They never have been. Humility and gentleness weren't uh, admired in the ancient Greek world, in the ancient Roman world. They're not admired in the Western world of today. But they are highly prized by God. He values those things, and he loves to see those things in his children. So, humility, gentleness, and then finally, patience. With patience, it says. The Greek word there is makrothumia. And, you know, when you you talk about a person who gets angry pretty easily, someone who's easily just perturbed and flies off the handle, 
loses their temper. We call that kind of a person, at least in English, we call them a short-tempered person. Macrothumia, which translated patience, that means someone who's long-tempered, someone who's slow to anger. And we're called to be that way. We're called to show emotional calm in the face of provocation. And to show that emotional calm without complaint, without being irritated. Sometimes we're called to bear with repeated offenses, aren't we? Peter was so thrilled with himself when he went to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Expecting maybe a pat on the back from Jesus. Oh, Peter, you're so magnanimous. But Jesus said, no, I don't say to you seven times. I say 70 times seven. So that's the kind of patience that we should aspire to. So you've got humility, you've got gentleness, and you've got patience. And these are means. These are tools. These are the ways, through the power of the Spirit, that we bear with one another. And that's how it's set up in the verse, isn't it? Humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another. Christians need to practice humility. And I'll say this. If you're a true Christian, you will want to practice it. Right? And so, if, if there's no real desire in your heart at all to be humble to be patient or to exhibit these characteristics, then maybe you ought to ask yourself, am I really in the faith? Am I really in Christ? If I don't really have any interest or desire to be patient. Gentleness and especially forbearance or patience come into play when someone else isn't displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Can you imagine a church where everybody walked in every Lord's Day, sat down and worshipped and fellowshiped together, and everybody was perfectly exhibiting fruit of the Spirit. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And no one would have any opportunity, in a case like that, to exercise patience. There wouldn't be any need for it. No, it's when somebody isn't displaying fruit of the Spirit, when someone does or says something unkind, that's when these qualities really come to the fore. That's when they really are on display. And so we ought to do a reality check here, right? We don't live in a perfect world. And we don't worship in a perfect church. CFC isn't the perfect church. The church where my wife and I serve now is not the perfect church. You won't find one. Because every church is fully populated with sinners. And it's sinners, redeemed by Christ, called to be holy, who are to bear with one another. Well, then finally, verse 3, we are commanded to preserve peace. Verse 3, once again, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what verse 3 says. And, of course, I'm reading from the ESV um, and 
the, that word that the ESV translates eager, uh, it comes in, this is one of those words that uh, almost every version uses a slightly different translation because the, the Greek has such a range of, of possibilities, range of meaning. So whereas the ESV says eager, other translations might say be diligent to preserve the unity or make every effort, endeavor. In other words, you're supposed to exert yourself. You're supposed to make an effort in this. It will require effort. It will require exertion to preserve unity in the bond of peace. And we should want to do this. This should be high priority for the people of God to preserve that unity that we have, to keep, to preserve, to maintain unity. And when the text says that, when it says maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there are a couple of important implications there. The first is, that sometimes unity is fragile. We might even say oftentimes unity is fragile. It's delicate, and it needs to be preserved. The other implication is, if you're going to preserve unity, it must exist. It must actually be the reality. It's there. You can't preserve or maintain something that's not. And so as you look through the epistle to the Ephesians, you'll see the the idea or the theme of oneness, the unity, the oneness of the people of God come up over and over again. Let's just look at one example briefly together. If you just look back at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And, of course, here, the context is Paul's talking about a church that has some Jews in it and some Gentiles in it. A mixed church, people from different backgrounds, people who in many cases once hated each other, but now they're worshiping together. And so Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14 He says, for he, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. So you see the oneness and the unity, that theme that's woven into, their, into the, the scriptures, woven into what the church is. And it's a specific kind of unity. It's unity of the spirit. So God himself, God the Holy Spirit, is the author of our unity. And with his help, that same spirit... And with his power, we are to preserve that unity. Now, of course, this is not to be unity at any cost, right? This is not to be 
an anything-goes kind of unity. Why not? Because it's unity in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of truth. So we can't compromise truth in order to maintain unity. Certainly not. But that unity, that oneness that we just read about in chapter 2, is of the very essence of the church. So that we, we, though many, are one body in Christ. Let me conclude with just a few points of application. The first is uh, we have this challenge before us then. A challenge, a command, and that is to preserve the unity of the church. But we have to balance these two things. And they're laid out for us just in the three verses that we read at the beginning. We have to balance out walking worthy and preserving peace. And sometimes it is a little bit of a balancing act. It's a challenge we all share individually, each one of us, but also collectively as a church. Christians are called to purity and holiness and unity at the same time. And I can't help thinking of uh, when I consider this, my mind always goes to those membership vows. Now, many of you sitting here are actually members of CFC. And if you are, you took the same membership vows that anyone takes if they join a Presbyterian church, a PCA congregation. And one of those vows, you said, right? You said this. You promised to preserve the purity, to to study the purity and the peace of the church. And again, those are those two things that, that sometimes are a little bit of a balancing act. Because you need to have a concern for doctrinal and moral purity in yourself and in the congregation. But at the same time, you need to have a willingness to tolerate and bear with one another. In love, as the text says. This is our call. This is our obligation. It's our duty. So, I challenge you, by way of application, to balance and to keep that membership vow. Even if you're not a member of the church, what you really should be doing is studying the purity and the peace of the church. But then finally just to borrow the words of the text itself, walk worthy. Walk worthy. If you call yourself a Christian, you ought to live like one. If you're an heir of glory and a citizen of God's kingdom, you should live your life accordingly. Now, how do you do that? It's an awfully tall order sometimes. Well, the way you do it is through the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's spirit produces fruit in you, including gentleness, patience. Christ's spirit produces fruit in you and in those whom he has called. His spirit produces unity in the church, And his spirit gives power to preserve it. This is not something we do in our own strength. This is something we need the Holy Spirit in order to do. But his spirit gives us power to preserve that unity for the glory and the honor of our great Savior. And he's worthy of it. 
Christians are called to be one holy people. So we must manifest unity and purity. That is Christ's mandate for his church. And it's also my prayer for Covenant Fellowship Church. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for the great calling to which you have called us. Lord, we look to you because we know the strength is not in us. So we pray that you, through your almighty Holy Spirit, will give us strength to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And we pray that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, would get all the glory for it. And we pray in his name. Amen.